Hi, everyone. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to give a quick shout out to our awesome sponsors at Zeewee. You know, our furry pals are carnivores, and Zeewee gets that. Their peak prey recipes are spot on with what they would choose in the wild. We're talking real meat, organs, fish, and even green mussels. Zeewee's been all about peak nutrition since 2002. Ethical, sustainable, and packed with only the purest ingredients from New Zealand. If you want your pet munching on what they're biologically designed to thrive on, check out Zeewee. And for 20% off, feel free to put in our discount code, CanonOptima20. What the dog doing? Hi, Joshua. Hi, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm super with a capital duper. How long have you been doing um, these podcasts? I just started two weeks ago. Oh, wow. That's super yeah, exciting. Yeah, yeah. It's a little left field. I'm technically not in the rescue industry as far as as much as I do from a foster and a trainer effort. However, in since we began the dog training company and worked through a lot of behavior and therein, we started gaining a lot of friends in rescue and upwards of 25 different organizations here local to the Bay Area. And you know how it goes. Once you grab a couple of friends in rescue, you're in rescue. Yeah. So essentially, we turned our social media into a networking platform as well as a dog training tutorial support driven social media. And because I started the podcast, I still want to stay consistent with what we do. So I'm going to is whatever spotlight happens with this podcast. I still want to spend some time and talk to rescues and elevate their story, do what we can can we can from a donation drive perspective and just celebrate all of the hard work and unsung heroes on that side of the industry. I I love it. And we're certainly not a traditional rescue. And yeah, I, I'm super excited about this discussion. And yeah, just thank you for having us, especially so early on in, in your work in this. This is great. I've known of you for quite some time. I ran across you when uh, I was working a, a newly fostered dog that had just been pulled from a situation when my clients were the fosters for your organization. And as I, the dog had, we ended up turning the training session into just pulling foxtails. Like I'm talking hundreds upon hundreds of foxtails from the animal. And while I was there pulling all the foxtails, they were telling me more about your organization. And I just couldn't believe it. I, I've been around rescue, but I, I hadn't heard of such a specific and most importantly, important specialty in rescue. So definitely wanted to talk to you guys and, and let people know what you do because it's from just by the sounds of it, it's there aren't many rescues that cross the line of humanitarian efforts, equal fisted animal welfare efforts. It's rare. So I guess if you could just tell us a little bit about your mission, your organization, some of the services that you provide. I'm sure people are going to be blown away once they wrap their brain around the efforts that you guys make as an organization. Sure, sure. I'd love to. Red Rover started back in 1987. We are an animal welfare, well-being nonprofit. And we really started with our program called Red Rover Responders, and it's kind of like the Red Cross for animals. So we train volunteers all throughout the U.S. and Canada on how to provide temporary emergency sheltering services in natural disasters, in cruelty situations, all different kinds of things like that. And I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit more later, but that program has also grown as far as what opportunities we have for our volunteers and just a, a really exciting program. We also have our Red Rover Readers Program, which 
really is all about teaching kids about kindness and compassion and empathy for animals and people. I, I truly love that program. We do it through traditional books, you know, the train the trainer model. So training teachers, humane educators, volunteers on how to use children's books to just have open-ended, non-judgmental discussions around animals and, and people. We also, through the Reader's Program, um, publish something called the Kind News Magazine. I don't know if you're familiar with Ranger Rick Magazine. That's what I had as a kid, but similar to that, one includes stories and information about all different kinds of animals and games and a humane hero. So really exciting program. And then, of course, there's also our Red Rover Relief Program which is where our emergency vet care grants live, our urgent care grants to help fill gaps for emergency vet care. But it's also where um, all of our domestic violence work lives. And so that's where our grants come out of. That's where all of the support that we provide organizations in creating that program live. So in the big nutshell, that is the work of Red Rover that we're doing all across the U.S. Wow. And so it started off, it sounds like more of a, 911 for natural disasters, which and already is a very complex operation with all of the the various things and communities that can be impacted by natural disasters. So you already have to have your stuff together. And as if that wasn't enough, where did you sprout from there? Did the domestic violence support relief come following the emergency uh, disaster relief or was it hand in hand the whole time? I would say it, and I wasn't around Red Rover at the time, but we really started in earnest with our domestic violence work back in, in 2007 with our safe escape grants. And I do think it did come out of that disaster work because in disaster is where we really first started to really understand that people are hesitant to or will not leave if they can't take their pets with them. And so we see that in natural disasters and we see that in domestic violence as well. Survivors um, are very reluctant to leave an abuser if they can't take their pet with them. And so we did start with that safe escape grant work in 2007. Um, You know, essentially we're helping to cover the cost of boarding a pet while a domestic violence survivor is in shelter. But, you know, as you probably know, boarding can be really expensive. Um, And so in 2012, we established our Safe Housing Grants Program. And essentially through that program, we're able to give a larger sum of money to a domestic violence shelter to actually help them create their own pet housing program. And since 2012, we've given over 200 grants at this point for just under $4 million. I I am, of course, very biased because I spend a lot of my time in the safe housing grant work. But I love the safe housing grant program because it, it gives domestic violence organizations, it gives communities the resources, the programming that they need when they need it. Our Safe Escape Grants programs are essential and I think very important, but we're essentially a Monday through Friday organization. We're based in California. And so we know that domestic violence happens outside of that Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to, to 4 p.m. time frame. And so I'm a big fan of our safe housing grant work. And I think we we also realized early on in this domestic violence work that it wasn't just enough to give grants. And so we needed to do more to, to walk the walk with organizations and help them in this process of creating 
pet housing programs. And that is where our work grew to include the Purple Leash Project, a partnership with Purina. It's also what really led to our collaborative project with Greater Good Charities called Don't Forget the Pets, where we're really helping to train and coach organizations and communities in this work. And ultimately to, to what we have now, which is our 25 by 2025 campaign, really just designed to help make sure 25% of domestic violence shelters are pet friendly by 2025. Wow. And how does that work? So the when you're trying to erect one of these domestic violence pet shelters from beginning to end, how does how do you get someone involved and how do you help them uh, get off the ground with something like that? Yeah, the sort of the really great thing and sometimes the really hard thing about pet housing programs is that they really can look many different ways and it really does just depend on the individual shelter, what it looked like, what it physically looks like, to what community support they're going to have. And so it really can look a, a lot of different ways. And through the Don't Forget the Pets project, we provide virtual and in-person workshops that really just give that 30,000 foot view of this is why it's important. This is the link between human and animal violence. This is the power of the human-animal bond to who to collaborate with, how to collaborate with folks through even this is what your plan or your physical design of things can look like to policies and procedures and fundraising. And so we give that 30,000 foot view in the workshop and then we provide a free coaching program. And so then it's really just that one-on-one support working with organizations to work out some of those real details. We're big fans of on-site housing, keeping domestic violence survivors at the same location as their pets. There's just so much power in that and in the healing process. And it can look many different ways just on-site. It can be A survivor and pet stay in room together. It can mean that we're maybe taking an existing space or perhaps a new space on site and making that into really comfortable pet housing that really invites the pet parent, the survivor to come hang out with their pet. But we also coach organizations through other models. Maybe the pet needs to stay in an animal shelter or an animal rescue or through foster. Ultimately, we just want to help more survivors and their pets escape abuse and find safety and healing together. And we're going to work with the community to make that happen in whatever way it needs to happen. And so when you're looking at a circumstance like this, is it you have fosters within your organization or are you working with third-party rescues and their fosters if the animal can't stay with the survivor in that particular location process? Sure. So we, that's a great question. We work have removed from the process, from the direct service side of things. And what we would do, let's say with a fostering situation, we would really encourage the domestic violence shelter or the homeless shelter to partner with an animal rescue organization, an animal sheltering organization in their community and work through their fosters if they already have some fosters set up. If they don't have fosters set up, we can certainly provide some direction and some guidance. And most most importantly, the role that we're going to play in that process is to help those two organizations understand that these fosters really need to be specially trained just in that they need to know what domestic violence is. They need to know what it means to experience homelessness, to understand that because of the abuse, pets may come in that have never seen a vet. They may exhibit some behaviors that 
might be a little challenging because they are responding to the trauma that they've experienced. Or even they may see pets come in that aren't groomed as well as maybe their own pets. And so really just helping everybody, all the organizations and the foster parents know, hey, before we jump to judgment, let's just take a step back, understand maybe what is happening here on the larger scale and think about what supports we can provide, you know, this pet parent and this pet. So that's the role we play in just in really helping organizations understand how they're going to need to prepare these foster parents. Foster parents are really used to that happy ending story, you know, when they foster a pet and that pet gets adopted and they get to see it on social media. In these cases, foster parents shouldn't really know what happens. Really, ultimately, all they know is I'm taking the pet to this location and that's it. And so I think really preparing them for that and also just helping to make sure that they know hey, these are pets that shouldn't really be going out for walks in the neighborhood or to Starbucks for that puppuccino just because we need to really maintain that confidentiality and safety for that pet. So that's the role that we play when it comes to helping organizations set up that that fostering system. Wow, I wouldn't have thought of that. Would you say that the... Would you say that the pandemic has affected the rate of domestic violence and or the need for your services? Yeah, I I think, gosh, COVID, we're still, I think, living through the the ramifications of COVID. And, And I certainly think if you were to talk to many organizations serving domestic violence survivors, they would say that they're still feeling that effect and they're still experiencing more need for their services. And I think one of the other effects that we're also seeing from COVID is that folks are staying in shelter a little bit longer. And where you might have seen a 90-day stay for a survivor, we're still seeing those tip up to 120, 50 days. And so I definitely think we we are still feeling that those effects of COVID, even through our Safe Escape grant program, the cost of that program, the cost for boarding is going up. I think there's a number of reasons that are contributing to that. But I still think we're in a little bit of that, that COVID hangover. And how can the community get involved and support? I think there are so many ways that that folks can support. We would love to have folks join our Red Rover Responders program. We offer a free training workshop on that. It's go at your own pace. Folks can find out about that by going to redrover.org slash responders. You'll get all the information on it. You can join us for those more traditional responders activities like the natural disasters, the cruelty situations. But we're also doing more in the community from doing trap, neuter, and return activities or even spay and neuter clinics. And folks can also join us to actually help create some of this pet housing spaces at domestic violence shelters through our partnership with Greater Good Charities. I would also just really encourage folks to check out 25by2025.org so they can learn all about this movement to help make sure 25% of DV shelters are pet friendly by 2025. They can download the toolkit. They're going to get sample language that they can share on social media that they can share with organizations in their community, even letters to the editor. So lots of different resources at that 25by2025. And of course, we are always, um, you know, looking for folks to, to donate to Red Rover and they can, folks can go to redrover.org and find out all the different ways that they can become 
a supporter at Red Rover. That's awesome. Are there any nuances or specific challenges faced by survivors with children? And how does your organization address those needs? Yeah, we know that a lot of American homes, I think it's roughly 70% have a pet. And we also know that there are a lot of American homes with pets and kids. And we want everybody to be able to experience that safety and healing together. We also know that kids are directly experiencing and witnessing abuse between humans and also the abuse of pets. And we really do want to help organizations create this kind of pet housing programming so that folks find safety, they find that healing together, and we can also make sure that our kids get a new story about what it means to to have a pet and to love that pet and what it means to love and, and care for that pet appropriately. And when we are working with uh, domestic violence shelters and helping them become pet friendly, we're always talking about ways to maintain that human-animal bond, create those comfortable spaces in the shelter for the humans and for the pets to hang out, and also being really careful to make sure that everybody is going to be safe in that environment, and that includes our adults, our kids, and our pets. And for any potential uh, survivors or people that are being impacted by a dangerous situation in the home, what are some questions that they can ask themselves, mm -hmm. some clarifying questions to determine whether or not they are truly in an unsafe situation? And what are the first steps that they can take to seek your resources? Sure. And Josh, I'll definitely defer the first part of your question to the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Perfect. There are some great resources for folks if they're not sure and they want to go down that path and figure out, is this an unsafe environment for you? There's amazing resources via the hotline. And I, I would say you are not alone to survivors who are thinking about leaving, maybe want to leave but are fearful of what might happen to their pets. You are absolutely not alone. We know that 97% of domestic violence survivors feel that their pet factors into their decision to seek safety. So if they can't take their pet with them, they're hesitant to do so. If survivors want to find those pet-friendly resources, there are a few really great resources that they can reach out to. That's great. One is absolutely yeah. So sorry. One is definitely the hotline. And so they can reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, let them know that they have a pet, that they want some pet-friendly resources. Folks can also check out domesticshelters.org. It's an online searchable database of domestic violence organizations, and they can filter out for pet housing programs. And finally, there's the Safe Havens Mapping Project. And that is essentially a database of all the pet housing programs, or at least most of the pet housing programs throughout the U.S. that they can also search there. So there's definitely lots of resources out there. That's fantastic. And it, is there a way that someone can contribute to your foster program for those people that want to get involved, especially for the holidays? I know it's going to be a tumultuous time for the rescue industry abroad and even after Christmas time for the shelter industry. Are there ways that if people are listening and they decide that they would love to open up their home to a potential foster scenario, how would they go mm -hmm. about that? Yeah, I would really suggest that folks reach out to your local animal shelters, your local rescues, find out what their needs are, are for foster. I think right now in, in the animal welfare community, the animal rescue community, most shelters are, they're overrun. They've got their hands full. And so I would say reach out to your local 
animal shelters, animal rescues, see what need they might have for fosters. It could be the more traditional kind of foster setup, but we also see more and more of these temporary fostering programs popping up. And so reach out, see if they have that kind of program and see if they're looking for fosters in your community. And then what's your reach for the, because the other arm of this sounds extremely complex as well. When you're talking about natural disasters, I'm not sure what your wingspan is, if it's a national program where you're allocating resources and people to relief for relief efforts for natural disasters. But what does that look like? Are you preemptive or does it happen after the fact? Yeah, um, we are certainly through our responders um, disaster work. We certainly do work across the U.S., occasionally in Canada when we're invited to, to go up there. I will say that our team behind the scenes is is always reaching out, setting up relationships with uh, local organizations, those local entities who are responsible for disaster response in in areas and really just letting them know, hey, we've got this volunteer support, should it be needed? And then when a disaster does happen, we get invited in. So we're always invited in. And then we just help fill in whatever need is needed when those disasters do strike. We're always looking for more volunteers for that programming. And again, folks can find out more by going to redrover.org slash responders. You'll get more information on all the different kinds of, of deployments that we, we do with that program. And you also find out uh, how to become a volunteer. That's great. And I know you mentioned the, the By 25 initiative. Are there any other initiatives or programs that are, are coming about that you're excited about? I would also just love to to plug our Purple Leash project, and then I can certainly just share some exciting news for 2024. We've been partnering with Purina since 2000 um, on the Purple Leash project, and through the project, Purina absolutely does support those safe housing grants programs. I think since 2019, we've provided about a million dollars through that grant program directly from Purina So that's an amazing piece of it. But there's also just an amazing awareness piece that comes out of the Purple Leash Project. Folks may have even seen some special packaging in in the grocery aisle on some of the Purina products like Beggin Strips and Tidy Cat and, and that sort of thing. And it's just when you think about how amazing it is to have this message on packaging, I'm just blown away. I shared with you earlier that 97% of survivors said that taking their pet with them factored into whether or not they'd seek shelter. The, the flip side of that is that 72% of those same survivors had no idea that pet housing programs even existed. And so they didn't know to ask. And so that's a, a big gap. And so I think the Purple Leash Project does just amazing work in helping us to raise awareness in just many different avenues. And for 2024, of course, we're going to continue this momentum behind the 25 by 2025 campaign, but we're also have received a a small amount of money that we're going to be able to provide to homeless shelters as a pilot project. So just like our safe housing grants, we're going to be able to help make some shelters who provide support for people experiencing homelessness, some of these funds as well. I'm very excited about 2024. I'm not excited that 2024 is just around the corner, but it's going to be an exciting year, I think. I know California, specifically the Bay Area, has a huge uptick in homeless population, and it's a growing concern for Every patron, every politician here. So that's so great. Yeah. Is the Purple Leash Project, yeah. are you, is the match still going on? I know we just exited the Awareness Month. 
Yeah, unfortunately, that match did end with October Domestic Violence Awareness Month. But folks will have the opportunity to purchase a limited edition festivity ornament again this year. It's it's a pretty popular campaign every year. The Purple Leash Project Red Rover will be the beneficiary again when folks purchase that ornament. They do sell out really fast like super fast. So I believe they go on sale on November 3rd. And you can find that at festivities.com. But I mark your calendars, set an alert, set a reminder, because they do really sell out fast. That's fantastic. You've listed a lot of resources. I'm going to do my best to uh, capture all of the (laughs) websites and URLs so that there's links. Yeah. Uh, But you guys yeah. are amazing. I've, I'm right down the road. If you ever need anything from a trainer's perspective, I know that we're still somewhat of an appendage. And I have a lot of connections yeah. with rescues. Obviously, the Bay Area is home to some tremendous rescues out there. Yeah. Rocket Dog, ARF, yeah. Cal Paul's K9, yeah. and Mad Malawan Dutch Shepherd Rescue, just to name a few. Not only that, but NorCal Golden Retriever yeah. Rescue, which is also heavily involved in charity yeah. work. But Anything that we can do from a trainer's perspective locally, we're happy to support maybe that education with pet safety and Mm -hmm. assimilating strategies when it comes to dogs that potentially did come from a tumultuous Mm -hmm. home going into a new environment, especially a new environment with other dogs, new dogs in that home and the dynamic issue that you have there. Yeah, absolutely. And I super appreciate the work that you all do, Joshua, and trainers just in general. You really can play, I think, an amazing key role in this idea of pet housing programs. There there will be pets that come in that need a little extra love and support. And it's an amazing, I think, bonding experience also between pet parent and pet to walk through that journey together. And it's, it's going to help everybody acclimate and, and get used to things. Good change is hard. And so I think you can play a key role in that. And the really cool thing about when this kind of training can happen in pet housing programs, we tell folks all the time, we tell domestic violence shelters, hey, throw that training piece on a pet resume. Put a really cute picture on there. You can have staff, you can have foster parents, other people who have interacted with the the pet, write that pet recommendation letter and do all of that. And let's help get more people into pet inclusive housing. We know pet inclusive housing is a struggle across the country. And so anything that we can do to to push that forward and help these folks get into that long-term pet inclusive housing is a win in my book. That's awesome. Is there anything else that you wanted to highlight before we end? I think that I know that was a lot. It was. (laughs) I know. I I think it was. I know. I I threw a lot of information at you. I think that pretty much covers it for us. And just thank you again for the good work that you do and, and helping us get this message out. I think that is one of the most important things that we can do is raise awareness. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. This was fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to give all the information. And I'm really excited. And I hope that the people listening to this felt like it was value added, felt like there was support. And for those of you who um, need extra support, you did such a fantastic job of giving the resources and highlighting where people can go and what they can do. So I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I I appreciate it. Let me know if if you need anything else. Okay, thank you so much, Kate. Thanks, Joshua.